clearly one of the most remarkable events in all of human history, and that's not an overstatement, was the fall of the ancient Babylonian Empire. It was the first true world empire. You might remember that in the vision of the huge statue given to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, the Babylonian Empire was pictured by the head of gold. What an appropriate way to depict the once great Babylonian Empire. The historian Herodotus visited Babylon 90 years after the era of Nebuchadnezzar, and he said that he saw more than 22 tons of gold still present in Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was a true monarchy, but it eventually fell. The fall is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5, and I want us to turn there by way of introduction to our text in in the book of Revelation. So go back with me into Hebrew Scripture, to the book of Daniel, after the Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. After 43 years of reigning, King Nebuchadnezzar died on October 7th, 562 B.C. When he died, his son, Amel Marduk, took the throne for two years. He was killed by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser, who took the throne and reigned for four years. Then he died and was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk. He only lasted nine months because he was beaten to death by conspirators who then appointed as king a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the king of Babylon when the events of chapter 5 took place. So we read in verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousands. Now, some of you might be saying, if you were listening closely, listening closely to what I said a moment ago, you might be saying, hold on just a minute. I thought you said Nabonidus was king. Who's this guy? Belshazzar. It says he's the king. For centuries, this was a mystery because there was no historical record of this guy, Belshazzar. The only historical records indicated Nabonidus. So, naturally, all the critics of the Bible jumped on this and said, Daniel isn't historically accurate. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the book of Daniel. But then, during the 1920s, archaeologists discovered some Babylonian documents that solved the mystery. These ancient documents recorded the fact that Belshazzar was the son of King Nabonidus. That still doesn't totally solve the the mystery. So why is Belshazzar called king here in verse 1? In 548 B.C., Nabonidus moved to Tima, Arabia, and took on the title King of Arabia, and he entrusted his Babylonian kingship to his son, Belshazzar. So there really was a co-regency situation going on. Two kings, Belshazzar in Babylon and Nabonidus in Tima, Arabia. So Daniel wasn't at all inaccurate in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Belshazzar the king, and he was indeed king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand while he tasted wine. That's a polite way of saying he's drunk. 
While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar was actually Belshazzar's grandfather, but in ancient Oriental languages, the word father was used loosely to refer to any male ancestor. We understand that. Jesus is called the son of David, and he's hundreds of years removed from David, but he's in the line of David. So Nebuchadnezzar was actually Belshazzar's grandfather. Verse 3, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Every commentary I read indicated that this was a drunken orgy. Belshazzar could not have picked a more degrading way to defile the vessels of God. He knew that Yahweh, the true God of heaven and earth, hates idolatry, drunkenness, and immorality. You have to wonder why Belshazzar specifically asked for the temple vessels. After all, the temple of Marduk had vessels of the gods of other conquered peoples. So it seems that the king had a definite reason for choosing the vessels of the God of Israel. A little bit of historical background answers for us why the king singled out the vessels of Yahweh. First of all, it is a fact that Belshazzar, as a boy, had association with the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar. So he no doubt was aware of some of Yahweh's dealings with his grandfather. Specifically, the great vision in chapter 2, the dream of the head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, showing the succession of world empires. Belshazzar would have known about that. He also would have known about chapter 4, when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar with a condition called lycanthropy. Lukas, wolf, anthropos, man, wolf, man. It's a condition, a documented medical condition, where a man acts like a beast and eats grass lets his hair grow, his fingernails grow. Belshazzar knew all of this. Verse 22 of this chapter brings this out. Belshazzar knew this. In all probability, Belshazzar was aware of the fact that Yahweh had said, back in chapter 2, that Babylon would fall someday. God had indicated this through Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. That's one bit of information. Secondly, four months before this feast, the Medo-Persian army had come to Babylon and surrounded the city. This would explain why so many officials were in the city. This text tells us a thousand of his lords, his officials. They had all gone there for protection. Thirdly, it is a fact that Babylon was the world's mightiest fortress. With walls 80 feet thick and 350 feet high, with 100 massive bronze gates in them, this city seemed impregnable. In light of these historical factors, it seems rather obvious that Belshazzar decided to defile the temple vessels of Yahweh to show his opinion of Israel's God and his prophecy concerning the fall of Babylon. Let me state it very plainly. He was challenging God. And God accepted the challenge. Belshazzar knew that it was the God of Israel who had said Babylon would fall. 
He knew that the Medo-Persian army was right outside the walls of his capital city, but he wasn't worried. He was convinced that this city was invincible. Part of his confidence was due to the self-sufficiency of this city. For one thing, they had an endless supply of water. The walls of Babylon had been built right over the Euphrates River. The river flowed right through the city, and this provided a constant supply of fresh water. In addition, in anticipation of a blockade, the Babylonians had supplied the city with enough food to support the entire city for 20 years. So their attitude was they could just sit inside the city and allow the Medo-Persian army outside to rot. Verse 5 tells us, In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Picture this. Wild party, drunken orgy, and all of a sudden, a hand not attached to an arm, a hand begins to write near the lampstand. This was the logical place to write the message because the candles would have caused soot to build up on the wall nearby. Therefore, when the fingers ran through the soot, it would be, it would be cleared away and the plaster shiny wall would stand out. Besides, this was the most well-lighted area of the room. Verse 6 tells us, Then the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. What a change. Moments earlier, the king had been defying the Almighty God. He had been shaking his fist in the face of God. Now he is scared out of his mind. So he screamed for his wise men and promised great reward to anyone who could tell him the meaning of this writing on the wall. Verse 7 tells us, The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Belshazzar says, listen, if you can tell me what this is saying, not just read it, but read it with understanding and interpretation, I promise three things. Number one, a purple cloak, which was only worn by royalty because purple dye was extremely hard to come by. Secondly, a golden chain was promised, which could only be worn if it were given by a king. Thirdly, he promised the position of third ruler in the kingdom, Nabonidus and Belshazzar being the first two in authority. In spite of all of these rewards, no one could interpret the writing. Verse 10 says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. This queen is probably Belshazzar's mother. All of his wives were already present, and no wife would address the king so boldly. Verse 11, she says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. Stop there for just a moment. Notice that Daniel had to be summoned and brought to this banquet. He wasn't present during this immoral occasion. He had stood alone as a teenager back in chapter 1. He stood alone as a mature man, and now he's standing alone when he's in his 80s. Daniel is brought in. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Remember that there had been several changes in administration since Nebuchadnezzar had died. This would explain why Belshazzar did not know Daniel very well. Daniel was sort of on the sidelines by this point. Verse 15, Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me the interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel prefaces his thoughts by saying he's not interested in the personal gain. That's not why he's going to do what he's about to do. He wants to make sure that it's understood that he can't be bribed. But he says, I will tell you what the writing means. However, before he does, he wants to remind Belshazzar of some of the things he had purposely forgotten. Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with, was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now, with that background sort of hanging in the air, Daniel makes the application to Belshazzar. He says, verse 22, But you, his son, actually grandson, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his his house before you, And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. 
Did you notice the progression that Daniel outlined or maybe the digression? It's the exact same stage as many unbelievers still go through. One, he knowingly ignored the truth. Two, he purposely defamed Yahweh, the true God. And three, he arrogantly committed idolatry. That is a very common progression or digression today. People know the truth, but they reject it. Then they blaspheme God, either in word or life or both. And finally, they end up worshiping false gods. So Daniel really leveled him, leveled with him in verses 22 and 23. And then he interprets the writing. Notice verse 25. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel yufarsin. The word mene means numbered. It's repeated twice for emphasis. God is saying that he has numbered the days of the Babylonian kingdom, and those days have come to an end. The word tekel means weighed. God is saying that Belshazzar has been weighed and found morally deficient. That's a very graphic picture here. Remember, ancient scales had two sides to them, sort of a basket on, on both sides, and there was a, a bar that attached them, and then a fulcrum that went up, and you have the bar going across, and you put the standard of weight in one side, and then whatever item you're weighing here on the other side, and you, you, make, you make them balance if you want an even weight. So the picture here is God had placed his standards on one side, and Belshazzar's morality on the other side, and they were far from balanced. The word eupharsin means broken or divided. The kingdom was broken and given to another nation. All of this is explained in verses 26 through 28. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Babylon the Great has fallen. The kingdom they thought was indestructible was conquered. Here we see the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream that God had given him back in chapter 2. The head of gold was now taken over by the arms and chest of silver. The Medo-Persian army conquered Babylon. But how? It's a fascinating historical incident. In my opinion, one of the most amazing stories in all of history. The king of Medo-Persia knew that there was no way to take this city by normal means of warfare. It was far too strong. There were no instruments of weaponry that could even begin to make a dent in the massive walls that surrounded Babylon. And to try to scale the walls and get inside was committing suicide. Even if you could make it over the first wall, you had a long run to get to the second wall and you would be picked off by the archers before you even got started. So the general of the Medo-Persian army came up with a unique strategy. And the Euphrates River was the key to his strategy. The army actually diverted the water of the Euphrates River by building a dam. Slowly, the water dropped to waist level. 
And the Medo-Persian army marched underneath the massive walls right into the city. The city was totally taken by surprise. By the way, Daniel is not the only person who records this. This is documented in history. This is exactly how it happened. The army diverted the water. They marched in. The city was totally taken by surprise. The first troops went immediately to the royal palace to get Belshazzar, and they killed him on the spot, just like this verse tells us. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Babylon fell. Belshazzar was killed. The great city of Babylon fell October 13th, 539 B.C. Now here's an important point. Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians, but it wasn't destroyed. It was simply taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. Eventually through the years, if you trace the history, the ancient city of Babylon dwindled and kind of faded away. My point is this. This city never experienced sudden, catastrophic judgment and destruction. Yet that is exactly what Scripture predicts for Babylon. For example, look with me at Isaiah chapter 13. Go back to the left prior to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, verse... One, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Right here at the beginning of this chapter, we see that it is about God's judgment on Babylon. Skip down to verse 5 of this chapter. It says, They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and His weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail! For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt arrogance of the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedges of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Though this description of judgment may have had a partial fulfillment when the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, this description is clearly connected with the end time day of the Lord. That's mentioned two times here in this text. So here's my point. There is reason to believe This hasn't completely been fulfilled yet. Skip down to verse 19. Verse 19 says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. 
nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But the wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels, and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Again I say, though this prophecy may have had a partial fulfillment when the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, this description points to something more devastating than the takeover of Babylon. Verse 20 says, it will never be inhabited again. However, it is a fact of history that Babylon has never been void of inhabitants. A city or town of one type or another has always existed there. So this prophecy must point toward a yet future destruction. And that is exactly the picture we see presented in the text we come to in the book of Revelation. So with all this as background, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 18 as we resume our consideration of this powerful description by the Apostle John as revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ and his angels. Revelation chapter 18. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority in the earth, was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works, in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. As I've mentioned in the last two messages, the destruction of Babylon has already been foretold or predicted in the book of Revelation. For example, chapter 14, verse 8 says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That announcement in chapter 14, verse 8, is anticipatory. It hasn't happened at the time of chapter 14, verse 8, but it will happen. God is going to destroy, destroy the entire idolatrous system of the end times. Chapter 16, verse 19, describes part of what will happen when the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out upon the earth. It says, 
Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So here's the point. Before you get to chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation, there are two passages in this book in which we are told that Babylon is going to be destroyed. But no information is given about what Babylon is or why it's going to be destroyed. Chapters 17 and 18 fill in that void. In chapter 17, we are told about the destruction of religious Babylon. And in chapter 18, we are told about the destruction of political, economic, commercial Babylon. By the way, the way the term Babylon is used in these two chapters seems to depict both a city and a system. This is very similar to the way we use the term Wall Street or Madison Avenue. Both of those are actual streets. Wall Street is a street. Madison Avenue is an avenue. But they also stand for something. They stand for the financial or advertising enterprises. In the same way, when John uses the term Babylon, here in chapter 17 and 18, he is referring to a literal city, the capital city of the Antichrist's kingdom of the end times, and he is referring to the religious, political, and commercial enterprises represented by the anti-God system. It's interesting to note that back in 1986, Saddam Hussein began to rebuild ancient Babylon which is about 50 miles south of Baghdad. So it's possible that that very city will be the capital of the Antichrist Empire, or it might be another city which God calls by the name Babylon because of its character. Now we've already considered the destruction of religious Babylon in chapter 17. The Antichrist and the other rulers of the world will use this false religious system to unify the world, but in time they will turn on her and destroy her, or actually consume her, use her. And then as we see in chapter 13, the Antichrist will demand that all the world worship him. No more worship of any kind except of him. That's how it will all end for religious Babylon. The false church, the harlot church... Religious Babylon will serve its, the purposes of the Antichrist and his false prophet for the first three and a half years approximately of the tribulation period. Then he will turn on her, consume her. But the destruction of political, economic, commercial Babylon is going to be different. It's going to be more cataclysmic as we see here in chapter 18. It is very possible that it is the earthquake of the seventh bowl of wrath that causes the destruction of commercial Babylon, and it is described in detail here in chapter 18. So let's begin to consider it together. We'll only introduce it, and then, Lord willing, in the next message, complete the chapter. But let's introduce it. Verse 1, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. The significance of that final statement is seen in comparison with what happened back in chapter 16. You see, it's easy when you're studying the book of Revelation to just zero in on a passage and forget what has come before or what will come after, and, and we sometimes then lose the significance. 
But if you're just reading through the whole thing, maybe you put some pieces together. And this is a case in point where it's helpful to put things together. Because the significance of this statement is seen in comparison with what happened back in chapter 16 with the outpouring of the fifth bowl of wrath. Chapter 16, verse 10 says this, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now listen to this. And his kingdom became full of darkness. Pitch black darkness. But when this angel comes down from heaven, it says the earth will be illuminated with his glory. That will certainly get everyone's attention. Pitch black darkness. And then all of a sudden, the whole earth illuminated with the glory of this angel. That gets everyone's attention, which is exactly what God wants because of the announcement that is about to be made. Here's the announcement, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. What a picture of desolation. And the darkness of the scene is emphasized by the loud voice of the angel. I take it that everyone on earth somehow will hear this announcement of devastating judgment. This is the same kind of scene described in the verses we read earlier from Isaiah 13, if you remember them. The prophet Jeremiah predicted the same thing. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 39 and 40. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there, talking about Babylon, will dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. That's the same kind of description we see here in verse 2. Babylon will become completely desolate. It will only be inhabited by demons and unclean birds. Why will God's judgment be so severe? Verse 3 answers that question. Four. Four. Let me explain. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. God's judgment is going to be severe because Babylon will have infected the entire world with her anti-God materialism. The whole world will be polluted by Babylon. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about a global economy. Well, that's exactly what we see depicted here. This world, our world, may go through some economic hard times between now and then. It certainly is and has and probably will. But interestingly, the picture of the end times is one of wealth and prosperity, at least for Babylon and those connected with Babylon. Verse 4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. This verse shows us that this chapter, again, is an anticipatory description of judgment, 
Because before it actually happens, God is going to call his people out of Babylon. It reminds us of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the story? How God called out Lot and his family before the destruction. God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked in his judgment. So before Babylon is destroyed, God gives a gracious warning that she is going to be destroyed so that all of his people will come out. During the tribulation period, it will probably be a temptation for believers to compromise with evil Babylon for the purpose of acquiring food and other things in life. So the Lord warns his people about linking up with Babylon in any way. Come out of her. She's going to be destroyed. Verse 5, for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. It's thrilling, and that's an understatement. It is thrilling to know that God doesn't remember our sins, those of us who have received Christ, because our sins are washed away with the blood of Christ. But those who refuse to repent and receive Jesus Christ will have their sins remembered. God will remember them in judgment. This is more than just a mental thing, that God will remember them. It means he will act on them. So at this point, an angel speaks up to call for God to carry out his judgment on Babylon. Verse 6, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. Beloved, I don't know how that strikes you, but to me that is fearful language. When a holy angel calls on God to repay Babylon for all her iniquity. That is fearful language. In fact, he says, repay her double. And then verse 7, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Because of Babylon's pride, arrogance, and self-confidence, the angel calls for God to give her torment and sorrow. That's even more frightening language than the previous verse. Give her torment and sorrow. And that's exactly what God will do. Verse 8, Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. As I mentioned earlier, it is very possible that it is the earthquake of the seventh bowl of wrath that causes the destruction of Babylon. That's why all of her plagues will come in one day. Death, mourning, famine, and burning. Babylon will be the strong force of the end times. The dominant force of the end times. But this verse says the Lord God who judges her is even stronger. The system that began all the way back at the Tower of Babel, amazingly, will eventually be wiped out completely and obliterated once and for all. Babylon the Great is fallen. What should our response be to these things? Well, We don't have to guess, because the Lord tells us in verse 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. 
If we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then as his people, we are called upon to be different than people in this world. We are to have a different value system, different priorities. This is basically what John, the Apostle John, was saying in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When we embrace the values and the priorities and the materialism of this world, we end up sharing in her sins, to borrow the language from this chapter. So God says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. But there's another application here, and it is to those who have not received Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. You need to flee to Christ for mercy, grace, and forgiveness before it's too late. That's not a threat. It's not a threat. It's a statement of fact. Judgment is coming. But there is safety and protection in Christ. Receive him if you have not. Let's bow as we close. Our Father, as we consider these descriptions in your word, whether we are looking at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Revelation here, or the book of Daniel, it's another reminder to us, and we're very thankful for this, it's a reminder to us that you are the sovereign Lord of history. All the way back in Daniel chapter 2, you revealed to Nebuchadnezzar a dream that told him how many world empires there would be. The head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And that's how many there will be. Not one more, not one less. Because you are the sovereign Lord and ruler of history. And history is headed toward your ultimate culmination. Along the way, we see so many horrendous things. And it will only be worse in the end times when the Antichrist demands all the world worship him. But your ways will be accomplished. Your purposes will not be thwarted. And one day, just as Daniel chapter 2 depicts the stone cut out of the side of the mountain without hands, representing the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to this earth and strike the image on its feet and shatter it with such severity that the dust that remains will be blown away by the wind. And then that stone will fill the whole earth as the Lord Jesus establishes his kingdom in which righteousness will dwell. Father, your son, the Lord Jesus, taught us to pray when he was here in his ministry, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we contemplate these things that we have studied in this message, that is our prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until that day, may we, your people, be faithful to you, come what may, through thick and thin, adversity, prosperity, whatever the case. May we be true and faithful. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.